You are listening to the Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Glad you're part of the program. We got a poll question. We got a play of the day. We got a couple of stats of the day. You can watch on YouTube.com slash the Dan Patrick Show. It's free all three hours. And uh, you can also listen. 362 radio affiliates around the country. As plans are starting to develop uh, to open up sports, leagues are facing the very real possibility of competing without fans. And there's a lot of factors to consider here. First of all, you have public safety. You have the financial impact. And then just the logistics of getting everybody in one area to try to play these games. But something that's harder to quantify is really the bond between fans and the competitors. You know, that adrenaline rush you get from hearing the roar of the crowd. You hit a last-second shot. You hit a home run. You strike somebody out with the bases loaded. The rituals of tailgating. The sense of community you have when your team goes out there rallying for the home team. And the stronger leagues can make this work financially. TV money has changed the way many sports are organized. And uh, most of the industry should be able to survive without ticket revenue. As fans, we're hungry to watch. We want to watch something that's real. But something will be lost during this strange and unprecedented time. It'll be lost in translation there because... We're going to be watching. We won't be there. They're going to be playing, but they won't hear us. It'll be something that we're not going to forget. Players are not going to forget. But hopefully it's a brief period that we'll be able to safely root for our favorite teams in person at some point. I know that we talk about jump-starting the economy, and everybody wants that to happen. I don't understand when we attach sports to jump-starting the economy. You jump-start the economy through sports, if you're able to go to sports, if I can have 100,000 fans at the big house, if I can get 20,000 at Staples Center, if I can get 90,000 at the Coliseum to watch USC football, that's helping to jumpstart the economy. If you're playing a game and I can't go to the game and all I'm doing is doing what I'm doing now and that's sitting at home, that's not jumpstarting the economy. So I disagree with the leaders who say, hey, this will help jumpstart the economy. Until we get to go to a game, it's not jumpstarting the economy. It jumpstarts our mood because now we have something that we can watch that's live. Instead of saying, hey, let me go back and watch something from 1972. It's uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Bucks against the Detroit Pistons, which, by the way, I was watching this morning. Kareem is so great. He is so great back then. So was Oscar, too, his uh, point guard. And then you had some uh, people talking yesterday, uh, people who get paid to do this. The uh, vice president, uh, Vice President Pence, had a call with college commission, uh, college commissioners. And uh, you had some reaction to this. USA Today said part of the call had to do with differentiating college sports from professional leagues. Pro athletes can collectively bargain their working conditions in their return to play. College athletes cannot. In fact, the liability of bringing college sports back too soon and exposing athletes to infection could be significant. The commissioners, USA Today goes on to uh, say, will be the main entity that will decide when college sports return, with input from the NCAA and medical personnel, of course. College football does not have a central authority. Most power is held by the Power Five conferences, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC. You can't order them back. And you can't, you can't say to your athletes, hey, it's not safe enough for students to come back. 
but come on back. Not going to happen. Can't happen. And you can't say to them, they're student athletes. I think it really puts them in a precarious position. Imagine if your, your kids, you know, your children are one of those players and you can't go back to school, but we want you to go back and play football. If they have safeguards put in place where everybody is tested, where those who need to get tested can get tested, but then we start to look at the athletes and you want to get them tested, and you're going to do that on a weekly basis, all it takes is one person to test positive. And then you shut down. One person. Let's say Michigan's football comes back, one player tests positive. You shut it down. Right? Those are some of the hurdles that you have here. And that's where it's difficult. Uh, You know, you're talking about uh, a mayor in Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti. Uh, You're talking about the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. They're not going to be having fans in Los Angeles at sporting events. Not anytime soon. You know, the NFL is planning on this. I I told you, I don't know if it's, I don't even know what day it is sometimes, but was it a week ago or two weeks ago? The NFL is looking at a truncated schedule. That you're looking at 12 game, 14 game, maybe you get to 16 games, but they have to look at alternative plans here. Washington Post had that yesterday, Mark Maskey. While still publicly committed to kicking off its 2020 season in September to pack stadiums, the NFL has been contemplating contingencies that include a potentially shortened schedule, holding games in empty or partially filled stadiums, and moving or rescheduling games if necessary. That's uh, three people familiar with the league's planning set on Wednesday. Yeah, I got that information two weeks ago, and uh, they were looking at, you know, it was probably going to be 12 games. I said, would they go down to 10? And I got a pause at the other end and said, probably not. They would want to try to get 12 games if possible. A lot of scenarios, and we should be thinking about scenarios. But I also think you got to, Mike Trout said yesterday to Mike Tirico on uh, NBC Sports Network, Look, I I don't want to be quarantined for four months. My wife is pregnant. I I can't leave to then be there for the birth of my first child. But they they want to get paid. They need to get paid. So there's so many different loopholes here. Can I put a big bubble over Phoenix and Scottsdale and Chandler, Arizona, and say, yeah, go in there, and it'll be safe? I hope it's safe. Can I do that to Florida, where it's far more spread out? It's just a challenge here to try to do it. You got the WWE coming back. Uh, The UFC is going to be coming back. We're going to talk to the commissioner of golf, uh, the PGA, uh, tomorrow and ask about golf coming back. You know, I can see golf coming back. You know, there is social distancing. I could see tennis coming back. There's social distancing. I don't have any fans there. But you could still hold those types of events. You could do remote cameras with golf. Augusta could set that up right now. They have the money. They have the infrastructure there to just set up remote cameras. It's not going to look pretty. You'll have robotic cameras. That's what we have here in the man cave. Robotic cameras. One person is in control of that. Set it up. Number of people. You limit the number of people who go out to work on the course. And uh, you hold an event. You know, the players understand social distancing. You and your caddy. That's about it. But I think you can do some of these sports. It's what are we rushing back for? You know, it's not jump-starting the economy. And if it was, I'd say, okay, I understand. 
But if no fans can go, this is about TV revenue. This is about the TV networks here. This is about the you know players getting paid. That's not jump-starting any economy. But we continue to search here. And we continue to try to come up with scenarios, which, which we should. It's when we put a time frame on these leagues, on a decision. Look how many times we've done this, all of the sports. You know what? Should be able to come back in April. Hey, we're planning on coming back 1st of May. Hey, we're thinking about June. Hey, now there might not be football in the, uh, in the fall. Now we're talking about spring football. We're all over the place here. And that's where it gets dangerous because you're pushing something that maybe it's the immovable force against the irresistible object. you got to be careful of how much we push, how much we open this up. And I have friends who live in states and say, what is the big deal here? I have a friend who lived at, lives in Arizona. He's playing golf every day. He goes, we don't see anything. This isn't a big deal out here. I said, well, it might be. But there are other country, uh, parts of the country that are severely impacted by this. And you got to be fair to them. If you're, you know, Rutgers playing in the New York City area, can you really host a game? Can you travel? Syracuse, can you travel? Can somebody, you know, there are all these logistical nightmares. But I'm glad we're exploring it. And, and yes, we all want it to come back. But I, I just don't think anything's coming back anytime soon. There's going to be a whole lot of pressure to do it. I just don't know if we could do it and make it safe for everybody. I don't get on any political soapbox. I try not to. I'm just trying to be realistic. I'm being honest with you in what I see, what I hear, and what I think. There are no political. I don't want to weaponize anything that has to do with COVID-19. I don't. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to... Yale Hospital two days ago with my wife who makes ice cream and she wanted to hand it out to workers just to show up and say, let's put a smile on their face. And you're you're witnessing the front lines. They have 400 cases of coronavirus there and you could see in their faces. They're shell shocked. They're like, oh, my God, thank you. Like they just wanted something that said, thank you. Smile on your face, just anything. And they said, well, how come you're here? And I said, look, I'm along for the ride just to try to get some credit here with my wife. She's the one that's wanted to come here. And they said, thank you. No one on the streets. No one. It's like a ghost town in New Haven, Connecticut. At Yale, one of the great hospitals in the world. And you could just see what they're going through. So you can't go, hey, let's just be cavalier about this. You can't be. If you're around it, you see it, you feel it. And I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm safe and my kids are and nobody has contracted this. But I feel lucky that I'm able to do this every single day. So just understand, it might not be where you are, but it could. And it is affecting a lot of people. Maybe not as many people as we thought, but it's still affecting quite a few people. Uh, New York City is apocalyptic. You don't even, you know, people who've been in New York and people who have to live in New York and stay in New York and stay in their apartment tell me, you just look outside and there's no life. There's nothing. There's, it, it's just, you can hear echoes when people talk. So it's haunting. 
And that's why I always caution. Let's not put a time frame on this. Let's understand exactly what we have in front of us here. Attack it together. And hopefully we get something in our lives that we've come to appreciate, expect, take for granted. And that is sports back in an arena, in a football stadium. All of those things, which I think we could all use some comfort right now when it comes to that. Right, 877-3DP-SHOW, email address dp at danpatrick.com, Twitter handle at dpshow. We'll get to uh, phone calls coming up. McLovin, you got a poll question for me. I don't know if this is an actual poll question, but if we put up, are you okay having sports without fans? How do people respond to that? Uh, at this point, I'm fine with it, but but I don't have an option. Do you think most fans feel that way? Well, you can put it up there, but we, we don't we don't have an option. So it doesn't feel like there's any other answer than, yeah, I'll take sports because we have we have no other choice here. Yeah, I'm glad. I have another another question too. You said that it won't jumpstart the economy from like a dollars and cents standpoint, but is there like a financial value of lifting the mood of the country and putting sports on TV? I feel like sometimes like the stock market's all based on the mood of the country anyway. So I feel like lifting the mood has a value. Maybe so. I, I'm just talking about these smaller cities, these college cities, college towns, small businesses, people who rely on tailgates and that they supply food, that you come in, there's takeout, there's atmosphere. Like, that's the economy I'm talking about. It's the little guy who's being crushed here. You know, bigger business, they'll survive. They'll take a hit, but they'll survive. The smaller guys, that's where you go into these, you know, you go to Lambeau, and you know there's certain places you can go there and eat. You know, you can go there and drink. Like Those people, they're the ones that are hurt. They've been stung and may not recover. So when you jumpstart an economy and our mood changes and the stock market goes up, okay, but that's not what I'm talking about when we're dealing with the economy. Yeah, McLevin. You're not on, Andy. Sorry, another question about college sports. Do you think that this will end up getting payers played or just change the whole structure of college sports? Uh, because you said they can't go back as regular students, is there any chance that they like label them professionals and go back? Well, Paulie and I talked about this yesterday after the show. Can you just say, look, we're going to treat you as college employees. Then we pay you minimum wage. Like our, I wonder what the future of the NCAA is going to be. I do. I, I think big picture. I wonder what the NCAA is going to be after this year, after we get through this pandemic. I, I don't know. Are we going to expand? Are we going to rip up that contract with the final four that ESPN has and make it 16 teams? Because you have, that might be the lifeblood for some of these, a lot of these universities with their secondary sports. They may all go under. And it started with Cincinnati saying, we're getting rid of our soccer program because they were going to save close to $8 million over the next 10 years. And then uh, you had Old Dominion canceling their wrestling program, I think. They opened the door. They opened the door. And all bets are off right now. So I, th I just think there's so much attached to this. And as much as we want to come up with game plans, using caution is the smartest thing that we can do. How can I ensure safety for these football players when they come back? How can I ensure safety for these baseball players when they come back? The NBA, if it comes back. Fans aren't going to be able to go out. You know, I, I'm of the mindset I will not see a game in person probably in the next year. Like, I, I really wonder when we could actually go back. When do you feel confident? When do you feel safe going back? Because as we found out with Rudy Gobert, 
When one guy tests positive, he brought down an entire league. And you extrapolate that, he basically brought down sports. Because now we realize there's something really attached to this. Now it could hit anybody. Now it could be the people who came in contact with him, the referees who did a game. They contracted this. You know, what other players? Donovan Mitchell. And then, you know, we're fans around this. The training staff. Like, it just, it, it just trickles down there. And that's where trying to jumpstart the economy, I hope we can. And I hope sports plays a large role in that. But I just don't see that happening. We'll come up with a poll question today. Uh, we'll talk about the Bulls documentary. And um, also, there was talk yesterday with Odell Beckham Jr., the third, maybe being traded. It was, I'm going to say it was more of a I'm hearing or a rumor by a, a, a sports host, a WFAN in New York. I, uh, I did some work on that and uh, have an update on uh, the possibility that Odell Beckham Jr. was on the uh, trading block to the Minnesota Vikings. 19 after the hour, just getting started here. Dan and the Danettes, Dan Patrick Show. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Uh, They're doing well. Doing well. I think we got seven left on the shelf. We do? Yeah. Yeah, we have seven left. Well, I know we have a couple here in the mail room. That's it. That's it? Yeah. Oh. This is one of the few shirts that we've actually gotten people writing in, uh, like, hey, can I get one of those? Mm. Like, not just nor- like, uh, you know, like fans of the show or whatever. Uh, other people that are like, hey, can you send me one of those? Oh, so people might be in the industry type people? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, tell them to order. Go to danpatrick.com. <laughs> Come on. No special treatment around here. Just ask the Danettes. All right. Um, I uh, did some research yesterday, did some homework when I saw the report. I don't know if it was a report. Andy, can you tell me exactly how that was presented by a, a host on WFAN? Yeah, I believe it was Mark Belusis said that he was hearing that the Vikings hearing. rounds were taught. Were ta- yeah, it was a hearing mm-hmm. talking about that o- Odell trade. Okay. All right. So, you know, when if it's a report, that's one thing. But I'm hearing, you know, then I sort of go, okay. I hear a lot of things, and a lot of things I don't tell you because I'm just hearing, and that doesn't mean that it's happening. So I thought, all right, let me reach out to a source. And I said, uh, uh, let me see. Why would OBJ want to go to the Vikings, run-oriented, defensive-minded head coach? And my source said, well, he can be the number one wide receiver on a very good team. Offense is run by Kubiak. And uh, the staff includes his son. They've been together for a while. And I said, yeah, but Minnesota, they need a big-time guy since trading digs. They go from one hard-to-coach wide receiver to another. And I said, well, exactly. Like, why is Minnesota want to bring in Odell Beckham Jr. when you just had Stefan Diggs who wanted to get out of Minnesota? And I know OBJ is great. I get it. All of that stuff. I don't want him. And, and, and if anything, if I'm Cleveland, I want to see if I can make this work with Baker Mayfield, Jarvis Landry. I, I want to see if now everybody's got to change. The problem I have with OBJ is I think Baker Mayfield tried to force the ball to him to make him happy. I want to go to OBJ as much as I can, but when you force it and, and you're not looking elsewhere, then it affects you know the overall performance of the offense. So then I got a uh, text this morning from the same source. 
And he says, sounds like the Vikings are more inclined to draft a wide receiver than make that trade. And I said, how come? And he said, more of the same headaches. You know, look, we're hoping for stories like this. But in, you know, the reality of this is Mike Zimmer's a tough minded guy. He's not going to put up with this. That head coach is not. Why? You don't trade for that. Stefan Diggs was already there. And then Stefan Diggs maybe became a different player. And then you want your touches because, hey, I had this unbelievable catch to beat the center. Like, I'm something now. I, I, I need to have the ball. I need my touches. But you're not looking for a headache. And that's what you would be doing if you trade for OBJ. You're going, hey, let's look for another headache here. No, that doesn't make any sense. I, I want to see what Baker Mayfield does. There's a lot attached to this season, I think, with Baker Mayfield. I, it may not be, you know, success or bust for him, but, you know, we'll get close to that if he has another year where he struggles. But he, he has to stop zeroing in on one guy. You know, the great quarterbacks spread it around. It, go back to one of my favorite moments and painful moments because I was a Bengal fan back then. When Joe Montana leads them down and they score the touchdown you know, under a minute to go, and he throws it to John Taylor. Because you know what they did? They put Jerry Rice as a tight end. And Joe knew Jerry was going to confuse them and open things up. And John Taylor had single coverage and he threw it to John Taylor. One of the biggest moments in 49er history and the greatest wide receiver of all time was a decoy. That's the interesting part of that. Use all of the weapons you have. And if Baker Mayfield's going to be great, he has to go back to that rookie year where simplify it. Don't try to be Brett Favre. Just make the plays that are there in front of you because that team is so good and talented. So talented, I should say. Not good, but talented. And I think that'll be interesting to see what happens with the Cleveland Browns. Trading Odell Beckham, I wouldn't have brought him in in the first place. And, and don't I, I don't want somebody to take this out of context. I'm fascinated watching him. But understand, I was fascinated watching Jameis Winston. OBJ is an incredible talent. He's an entertainer. I don't like entertainers. I like guys who know what they do and how they make a team better. Entertainer? Boy, that sounds so singular and selfish. And that makes me nervous here. I know wide receivers are divas. But even Jerry Rice was a team player. He would come back and tell Montana, and Montana says this, hey, I'm open. You got to throw me the ball. Well, the quarterback has to be able to say, I'll get it to you. I had somebody else, you know, and that's where the coach comes in and says, look, it doesn't run through you, Odell. The offense does not run through you. You complement the offense because it's an entire offense, not just you. And I never met a wide receiver who wasn't open, by the way. Uh, Mary Kay Cabot, she covers the Browns, does a great job. She had this to say about the possibility of uh, trading Odell Beckham Jr. I haven't gotten any sense so far that there really is anything to it. Now, that doesn't mean that a conversation or a phone call didn't take place. It doesn't mean somebody didn't try, didn't inquire. But as of, as of right now, uh, from everything that I understand, uh, there, there is just nothing there. Yeah, and that doesn't mean something won't happen, but from what I'm told this morning, 
uh, you know, my source said that more likely to try. Every team in the draft will get a wide receiver, by the way. That's how deep this draft is for every single one. So all 32 teams in the first round? No, they're not all taking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In the draft, they're going to take, they're going to get a uh, a quality wide receiver. That's how, I think there's 42 that are considered quality wide receivers. That's how deep this wide receiving uh, field is. That everybody's going to get a wide, you get one and you. it'll be like Oprah. You get a wide receiver and you get a wide receiver. Um, did we settle on a poll question, McLevin? Uh, I actually kind of want to go with a uniform question, maybe. Okay. Keep it light on the poll question. Okay. So the Browns came out with a new uniform. It's kind of old school. I'm going to ask you to put your uh, 18-year-old shoes on. You're a recruit. Would you go with an old school uniform or a new school uniform? New school like our friends at Oregon. Oregon, Baylor. uh, Yeah, like Louisville. Yeah, somebody who changes it up every, every week. Penn State, Michigan with the old school. I, I, as much as I hated Michigan growing up, I still think Michigan's got one of the great uniforms in all of sports. I do. Ohio State's been varying theirs. They change it up a little bit with their helmets, jerseys there. But, uh, yeah, and Penn, Penn State's, it's sharp. Um, but if I'm an 18-year-old, nah, I didn't like Penn State's uniform. Back then. Yes, Paul. Dan, I'm with you. I was raised Irish Catholic Southside Chicago. I had no choice but to be a Notre Dame fan. Yeah. But I can remember maybe eight or nine years old, I watched a Michigan football game, and I was probably the first time I saw them and watched them. I was like, <gasps> and I saw those helmets <laughs> and the look and Anthony Carter and the gold pants and the maize pants, excuse me. And I was like, I like that. And I, I Fritzy did the same thing with the Broncos. I know it's a no question. Yeah. I like uh, I love the old school ones. I know a lot of the kids may not understand or appreciate uh, tradition, but if you get a chance to play for a team that's been around uh, 150 years or whatever, and everything has pretty much stayed the same, I'd want to wear one of those with the tradition. Yeah, I understand that it's marketing, and and you know because I don't like it, does it mean? I mean, that's not I'm not their target audience. If you got an 18 year old or 22 year old, they're like, yeah, it looks pretty cool they're not going to be buying into what I grew up with and say, yeah, that looks awesome. That looks classic. You're going to get, I mean, that's why the Rams took a chance on, on their uniforms. It's not for me because I'm going to go, well, what are you doing? I think of Roman Gabriel, Jack Snow, like, what are you doing to me? I don't want, you know, then we become the get off my lawn guy when it comes to uniforms. They're not marketing for me because I haven't bought a Jersey in, since Archie Manning with the Saints is the last time I think I bought a jersey. And that's a great jersey. Yeah. It is. It was. Now, I have a lot of jerseys in here, but I, I haven't bought any jerseys in a long, long time. You might uh, think that this is the Michael Jordan documentary. It's the Bulls documentary, and it will uh, start airing on Sunday. Michael Michael's already come out and had that preemptive strike to basically say... When you watch this, ah, you're probably not going to like who I am. But that's who I... So he was on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts. And that was a whole different Michael Jordan. Because he was emotional and he was funny. And I don't know if you like looking at yourself when you're younger. <laughs> I, think, I think Michael is... This is what Mike had to do to become Michael Jordan. He pushed you. He pushed himself. But... As, as he says in the documentary, I, I didn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. He wanted to push you. He picked on people. Uh, 
He also uh, talked about Jerry Krause, who was one of the architects of uh, the Bulls back then, told the head coach Phil Jackson that uh, Phil was not be not going to be coming back. Hence, the last dance. This was uh, courtesy of Good Morning America. The beginning of the season, it, it basically started when uh, Jerry Krause told Phil that you know he can go eighty-two and zero, and we, we he would never get the chance to come back. And you know, knowing that I was, I married myself to him. You know, obviously, and and if he wasn't going to be a coach, then you know, obviously, I wasn't going to play. So Phil started off the year by saying, "This is the last dance," and and we played it that way. You know, so mentally, it just kind of it tugged at you throughout the course of the year, you know, but that this had to come to an end. But it also centered our focus to making sure we end it right. So that's Michael Jordan. That was courtesy of uh, Good Morning America. Imagine you have a team that's still in its prime. You have Jordan, you have Pippen, you have Rodman. And you like, why not max this out one more year? You, you're going to win another championship here. All you're doing is writing a check. Like, how much is that? Is it $50 million that you're going to spend? $30 million to Mike. But you're making money. You're making tons of money. And ego getting in the way is truly amazing. But ego gets in the way of dynasties all the time. Go back to Shaq and Kobe. Ego got in the way. The greatest band of all time, the the Beatles, ego got in the way. You don't want to be around this person. You can do it without this person. Hey, I'll show you. I built this. I can build another one. Amazing. And it's something that you, it's hard to quantify that when you, when you see somebody, their ego. Like, what is that ego? And what's it mean? You know, you can say magic and his ego. How he played. He was selfless. Uh, you know, Bird, his ego. Different than Michael Jordan's ego. Hey, I don't want to throw it to you because I could, I'm better than you, so why would I throw it to you? Because I should be the one taking the shot. Like, just... And then two of the biggest shots in Bulls history were by John Paxson and Steve Kerr. It's ego. It's about winning. Is it winning together? Is it winning in spite? You want to show that you can do it? You know, Kobe wanted to, you know, disassemble and say, I can do it without Shaq. Shaq wanted to prove that he could do it without Kobe in Miami. Phil Jackson. Oh, you don't think I You don't want me here in Chicago? I'll go to L.A. I'll do it again. But ego. And, you know, you, you, you try to put that in the proper perspective, and it's hard to do because you're going, wait, what, why do you have a problem with him? Why don't you want Donovan McNabb and Terrell Owens? Problem there. Teammates, problem. Went to war together in a Super Bowl. Ego. You know, was the ego of Tom Brady's or ego of Bill Belichick? How involved was that with the Patriots? Tom's ego saying, I don't want Jimmy Garoppolo around him. Trade him. Robert Kraft trades him. The ego of Bill Belichick saying, all right, all right, you got what you wanted. Now let me see what uh, you can do when you go someplace else, and I'm coaching the Patriots. Ego. Yeah, Paul. The 97-98 Bulls with Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, all that crew, Kerr, they were 69 and uh, 97-98, I'm sorry, we're 62-20, and 20, and of course they won the NBA Finals. Uh, do you know the roster of the team the next year that won 13 games? 
Uh, well, that was Tim Floyd's team. Yeah, Tony Kukoc was the holdover. Didn't they have a guy out of Iowa State? <laughs> that, oh, oh, Marcus Pfizer? The Marcus yeah. Pfizer era? I yes. think that was one year later. Oh, okay. Because they got a high draft pick. Yeah. They had Brent Berry, Ron Harper, Randy Brown, Dickie Simpkins, Mark Bryant, Andrew Lang, Cornell David. Those were the starting like eight oh my God. rotation. Wait, Granville Waiters wasn't on the roster Granny still? Waiters, no. No, he was not. Yeah. Eddie Curry era? You didn't want to fast forward to that? I know. But that was Tyson Chandler. Ugh. Like, Tyson Chandler has carved out an unbelievable career. But not at first. Remember when you had those, those high school guys, and they, they took both of those guys. And Eddie Curry. Do I still have the Eddie Curry Dallas Mavericks jersey yeah. around here? It's in the bathroom. It's, uh, the, Mark Cuban sent it to us, said it's the largest jersey the Mavericks ever made. It, and he used, I don't, I think he used it for four games. It could be a prom dress. It's so long. It, it, it could be a formal. That is a huge, huge uniform. All right, we'll come back. We're going to talk about uh, the best uniforms and uh, an updated list here. Um, Paul Lucas is going to join us. He does uh, Uniwatch, and he actually uh, helps rank the best uniforms that we have in sports. I was surprised that uh, USA Today put out a list, the number one uniform in the NFL. We'll see if the Browns are uh, rising on that with their new uniform. What about the Buccaneers? Uh, We'll talk to him coming up next and our play of the day after this. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR, or stream us live every day at youtube.com slash the Dan Patrick Show. The documentary coming up at the top of the hour. We saw where the Cleveland Browns uh, new uniforms. We also have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Atlanta Falcons. Paul Lucas actually does this for a living. He looks at uniforms. He's the founder and editor of uniwatch.com. What do you think of the uh, Cleveland Browns new edition? Uh, Dan, I think it's a great example of moving forward by going backward. Uh, <laughs> they, they basically went back to their classic look, which they never really should have gone away from. Uh, when you look at these new uniforms, you think this is what the Cleveland Browns are supposed to look like. Uh, and it's sort of a question of how did they get it so disastrously wrong five years ago with uh, the set that they're now moving away from? How did the Rams get to where they are now, where you have one of their legends, Eric Dickerson, who works for the Rams, railing against the Rams with their new logo here? You know, the Rams have done something that it's a little uncommon and I think in a way is a little unfair to the fan base. And that is instead of unveiling their entire new identity, meaning logos, uniforms, the works, they just did the logos. Uh, and they're going to do the uniforms sometime in May after the draft. Uh, and it's not clear. They haven't said if that's because the uniforms aren't ready yet or, or if they just are trying to sort of draw out the suspense. Uh, but it, it really isn't. It does a disservice to the fan base and I think a disservice to your own marketing program when you release uh, logos without the full context because it's hard you know for for an nfl team a logo could could be appearing on your helmet or not and you know with the rams probably not because they're probably going to keep ram horns on the helmet Uh, and you really need to see the context of these logos and so yeah you have uh, fans and you have ex-players like eric dickerson saying we don't like these logos but really what matters is the uniform and that that's the you know the most primary thing especially for a team like the rams which as i said are not going to almost certainly not going to wear their logo on their helmet. Uh, so I, I think, and, and we're going to have to wait and see where that goes with the Rams, uh, but I, I don't think they've done themselves or their fan base any favors by doing this two-part unveiling. 
Well, what is the target demo for these new uniforms? Uh, I mean, the reason why I, I bring it up is the Rams aren't marketing to me. The Browns aren't marketing to me. The Atlanta Falcons aren't marketing to my age group. So, it, so what if I don't like it? I'm not the one buying these jerseys unless I'm buying it for my son or grandson. And, that, you know, then they're still getting their money out of this. So if you were going to say, what's the sweet spot for, you know, marketing these uniforms, what would it be? Well, I think it depends on what you think the function of the uniform is. You're suggesting that it basically is just a piece of merchandise, and that's certainly part of it. But it's also the thing we see when we watch a game every Sunday. It's, it's what we you know, look at and connect with uh, when, we, when we turn on the TV. And you know, the famous Jerry Seinfeld line uh, that we're all rooting for laundry is largely true. The players come and go. They get traded. They retire. But we keep rooting for that uniform no matter which player is wearing it. Uh, and that's an important thing as well. So while you could say that you know, only the – whatever, the, the 18 to 34-year-old demographic is what, you know, who buys the jerseys. But they are marketing to you. They are marketing, you know, to me or my dad or whoever, because uh, those are fans as well. And those are the people you want to connect with your, with, you know, with your team and have an emotional attachment. Yeah, to but your I, team. Won't, I won't turn my team off or pick another team because they have a crappy uniform. No, but you may feel like a little warmer and fuzzier about it, and that can, that, can tra- that can translate to other things. I mean, you look at teams like the Packers or the Cowboys or, you know, or the Rams, for that matter. You know, Rams fans, and I can tell you because I hear from a lot of them, Rams fans feel really strongly about that helmet with the, you know, with the curly ram horns on it, and, and they're going to be, you know, iris- you know and, and think of the NFL we feel really strongly about NFL helmets, right? Like, what, what do you have in your studio or TV studios? They have the helmets of the two teams that are playing because that is almost a de facto logo for an NFL team is its helmet. And we don't buy helmets. Helmets are not merchandise. I mean, you may buy a sticker that shows a helmet or, you know, a, a you know, a mini helmet or something like that. But in general, the helmet is not a major piece of merchandise. But it's a really important piece, arguably the cornerstone of any team's branding, visual branding program. And so I do think it goes beyond uh, just the, the merchandise sales. All right, final minute here. If you ran the Buccaneers, what, <laughs> what would you do with the uniforms? Uh, personally, I'd go back to the creamsicles and, and bring back Bucko Bruce uh, because I have a soft spot for that. Um, but I, I certainly think they, they, you know, similar to the Browns, they rejected the sort of Nike approach of, of let's go newfangled, let's kind of break the mold, let's push the envelope, and let's leave people scratching their heads thinking, you know, what the hell are you doing there? And let's go back to basics. And so they are now going back to their, their classic Super Bowl era uniform. And, and again, I think that's an improvement, even though it's, it's you know, a step backwards on the timeline but I think it's a step upwards in, in terms of uh, design quality. Great to talk to you again, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having That's, me That's uh, Paul Lucas, founder and editor of Unawatch.com. USA Today, I'm going to give you the top 10 here. These are their favorite jerseys. Philadelphia Eagles come in at number 10. 10th best uniform in the NFL. Number nine, the Minnesota Vikings. I do like the Vikings. I think in person, I like it better. I think it's underrated. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys are at eight. I love that. I mean, I hated the Cowboys growing up, but I love the uniform. I love the star. Okay, number seven is going to, maybe it'll surprise you. The Indianapolis Colts. It. I, I like the horseshoe. I, I like the color. I'm surprised they're that high. Let me see. Number six, the L.A. Rams. 
I'll get to the top five coming up, top of next hour. Cheese! One hour in the books on the Dan Patrick Show. <laughs> 